Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, my name's Caroline Eden. I'm the author of Black Sea and Red Sands, which is my new book, Red Sands, Reportage and Recipes Through Central Asia from Hinterland to Heartland. So last we chatted was in August 2019, and you were on to celebrate my 150th episode with Black Sea. Welcome back and happy, happy new year. It has to be a happy new year. (laughs) Uh, Thanks very much for having me back on, Susie, and uh, really nice to be here. So how does the landscape shape the food in Central Asia? It's a good question. Um, Central Asia is a vast swathe of the middle of Asia, the heartland of of Asia. Um, And I concentrate on four of the five countries of Central Asia in this book, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Put most simply, there are two groups traditionally, historically, within Central Asia, the nomads and the settled people of towns and cities which are scattered along the Silk Road. The nomads were very dependent on what they had to hand out on the steppe. That was meat, uh, horse horse meat generally, and um, sheep, mutton, and the milk that their animals produced. So meat and milk, very, very basic diet. And the people in the settled places, more in um, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and parts of Turkmenistan, which I don't feature in the book, had access to far greater produce, produce that was coming in from east to west, from west to east, and um, access to orchards, big um, irrigation systems leading in from the rivers, uh, very good nut and fruit forests, and access to meat and um, some fish as well in, in the rivers. So that's really how it's split. It's between the, the settled people in the towns and villages and the people who were out with their um, livestock out in the steppe. So that's what I was going to ask you. Why isn't Turkmenistan in this book? I really struggle with whether to include Turkmenistan or not, because it's a fascinating country um, on the Caspian Sea. A lot of great, interesting historical stories, which I could have pulled out from, from the country. However, it's run by a dictator at the moment. And reporting there freely is really problematic. So you can go, and I could have gone, but outside of the city, the capital city, Ashgabat, um, I would have been given a guide and would have been quite restricted to how I could travel and talk to people. And that's not really how I like to travel when I'm researching these books. I like to go slowly and speak to people freely and respectfully and sort of take my time. And I felt if I went, it would be slightly um, controlled. So I I chose not to go at this time. So Red Sands consists of two parts, two main parts, spring and autumn. You start in the springtime shores of the Caspian Sea out west in the largest country in the region, oil-rich Kazakhstan. And you open the book in Aktau, West Kazakhstan, walking on the promenade of the Caspian Sea. You called it a city of edited geography and simulated environments. I'm curious to hear about that. Great. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought this up because um, I was really, really fascinated with Aktau. It's a curious place. Um, so the Ukrainians and the Russians built it basically in the 1950s. There wasn't anything there before, and the way that it's laid out today is there are not addresses as we would know them. I mean, quite different in New York to say London. 
and we don't have blocks as you know we have streets and the addresses are different but there they just have numbers so the addresses read like telephone numbers so you'll have um, a block and then a flat number and um, that will be contained within a micro district which is quite a sort of soviet design not that unusual but in actow yeah there's only really a few street names of the major thoroughfares which run through um, and it's a really interesting place i don't think it really gets any tourism and i'm not exaggerating when i say that i mean kazakhstan is the ninth biggest country in the world and you can get off the, well you're off the beaten track if you're out of the two main cities, Nur Sultan and Almaty. But Aktau is really far out. Geographically, it's very, very remote. And apart from that sort of city and a few oil, that this is sort of the oil part of Kazakhstan, um, oil cities, you're into the desert steppe very quickly and absolutely remote and fantastically beautiful. So yeah, we, we start there, which I, it felt like a natural place to start. Talk a little bit about lunch in the Kizilkum Desert, which means, I guess it means red sand. Yeah, that's true. I was traveling through the Kizilkum Desert uh, a few years back now, and we stopped for lunch. Um, I think it was about a six-hour drive, and um, this building sort of appeared in the scrubby desert. And this isn't sort of like rolling sand dunes. It's quite scrubby with bushes and things growing and um, that sort of landscape. And this desert cafe appeared almost out of nowhere in the sort of saffron-colored scrub which is perfect timing. So we went in for lunch. I had a driver with me and um, they were making a very, very basic menu there. You you basically ate what you could smell. So you could smell the bread. They had a tandoor oven there. So beautiful, fresh, chewy in the middle, crisp underneath bread. Shashli, you know, like a, a skewered meat. Lovely smell of that sort of smoke corks growing up from the grill. Some little onion rings and tea. Um, so I, I sat and I had this lunch and it just struck me how entirely suited it was to its remote surroundings, this lunch. And I'd never sort of eaten anywhere that was so simple yet so harmoniously in tune with its really quite extreme environment. And that kind of sums up Central Asia when you get out of the cities. Um, the food is pretty simple and authentic in the sense that it's not really changed for a very long time. And I just had a bit of a moment, really. And I thought this is quite remarkable. Um, oh, and I also quartered a watermelon which I talk about in the book as well, and shared that round with some men that were sat at the tapcham, which is the sort of raised tea bed you tend to sit on in Central Asia. And yeah, I just, I, I had a, a moment in this cafe of thinking this could be quite an interesting spot for a book to use the desert as the heart and then sort of travel on way beyond the sandy borders of the Kizilcombe Desert. It's not huge and it, it just sort of spans Kazakhstan a little bit and Uzbekistan quite a lot. So yeah, to use that as a focus and then to travel way beyond and obviously using food, again, as a, as a theme of recipes to express the journey. In Red Sands, you talk about how you have to stop and you have to digest. And I was wondering, there's so much glorious granular detail in this book. Did you have a pencil and paper out all the time? How did you record everything? Generally, yeah, I mean, I have obviously have a notebook and a pen with me. Um, I also use a voice recorder sometimes and I take a lot of photographs. I, I work as a journalist part of the time. And so I'm, I'm always taking notes. Um, I do think it's actually best to take notes because if a photograph can only do the visuals and a voice recording can only do the sounds. Whereas if you're writing, you can kind of take everything down in one go. So yeah, I mean, some of it comes later from the photographs and some of it comes at the time. Yeah, it's, it's lovely to sit in the train or sit in the cafe and just absorb what's happening around you. I love that you wrote in the book, on these long journeys, the tempo of food and meal times becomes a mental rudder. 
longer. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, these were big journeys, six months in 2019 in Central Asia, moving around. So sometimes when I go to Central Asia, I've just been in earlier um, in 2020, I spent a few months just in Bishkek in the capital of Kyrgyzstan. But this was two long trips in the spring and um, autumn of six months moving around. And it's exhausting. Uh, I'm not that young. Well, I mean, I'm sort of, you know, not that young anymore. And the beds are quite, the beds are quite rough and the roads are really rough. And sometimes you go a bit hungry and thirsty if you're crossing a mountain range or a desert and, you know, it's dusty. It's quite rough and ready sometimes. Um, I mean, you... In, in Dushanbe, for example, the capital of Tajikistan, when you go and try to arrange a car and a driver, if the economy is not so good, which is often the case, you get mobbed by drivers wanting your business, pulling you and tussling with you and shouting at you. And, it, you know, I, I'm always very honest about how I report back from Central Asia. And it, it is wonderful, but it's also it can be really hard work. It's never really scary, but it can be quite unnerving sometimes. So for me, food is good to think with, but it's also essential because it's a rest. So it helps you catch the feel of a place, but also, you know, you need to sometimes just sit down at a bar for a few hours and have a couple of beers and digest what's just happened on this journey you've been on for the last two days. I think that's really important, whatever age you are. (laughs) Speaking of digesting, you were in Bishkek in October, smack in the middle of the violence, and you had a front row seat from your balcony. Can you talk a little bit about Bishkek before the revolution and then after the revolution? Yikes. Okay, so this isn't in the book. This was um, this year. And um, I was in Bishkek for a while with a Russian tutor. Um, My Russian is still not anywhere near where it should be. And um, I've got a great Russian teacher in Bishkek. And I was there doing some reporting as well and meeting up with some colleagues and stuff. And um, there were elections scheduled. No one really predicted very much was going to happen. My husband's a news journalist, and I know some of the other news journalists in the region, and no one was really talking this up to be a thing. And I was there in an apartment by myself on one of the main squares. Yeah, it hugely kicked off. I mean, Bishkek has had two previous uprising slash revolutions in the last 15 years. This is the third one. And the previous two had been extremely violent with a lot of loss of life. And I had a whole night glued to the balcony, apart from when the gunfire was really close and I thought the windows might get blown in. Watching the sky light up with explosions, listening to water cannons, grenades, uh, constant firing. I didn't know what they were firing, the police. Um, I was terrified it was live rounds. Turns out it was not rubber bullets, but sort of pellets, which were very dangerous and a complete night of carnage. So, and it, yeah, it took, we all it, followed along on your Instagram with you. Ah, uh, yeah, it took about 10 days for it to calm down. And the elections now actually about to take place. So we'll see um, what what happens. But all the main parliamentary buildings were stormed. Um, the president fled. I mean, it was complete chaos. It was really interesting. Obviously, I, I did some news reporting for the BBC and stuff. But um, yeah, it was it was it was quite scary at times. I was terrified people might just try and break into the apartment block to get away from whoever they were running from. I mean, these are good, solid Soviet-built apartments. You would have a job to do. You know, I was by myself in a city where I sort of vaguely knew two people, my teacher and the ex-British ambassador. It it was quite scary. Oh, man. So the landscape is incredible, but what you're really interested in 
are the man-made buildings. Talk a bit about how you named each essay. I mean, every book needs a structure. I was saying this to somebody the other day, and it's a kind of that sounds a bit cynical, but you've, you've got to shape it somehow. So I was thinking, what do I think of when I think of Central Asia? Obviously, um, I think of food and I think of the landscape, but actually more than any of that, I do think of the man-made buildings because that's where the stories are. I mean, obviously, if you're a nature writer, you can talk about nature forever and how inspiring and beautiful and interesting it is. But for me, I'm more interested in people and the human landscape and human stories. So for the book, I wanted to structure it around a building. So Pavlodar, for example, is called Conditore. It's in Cake Shop because... I feature this fantastic cake shop. Um, and then the, the essay on from that is Skyscraper, and that's Nur Sultan in the north, which is the new capital, because it's extremely modern and everybody always talks about the architecture there and the fantastic buildings. And then we go on to Karlag, which was the Kazakh sort of name for, for Gulag. It was their particular Gulag chain that Stalin set up. So that is a kind of like theme through the book, these little headings. Um, so you have a heading like Karlag, and then I have a subtitle, Remembering Stalin's Victims. And then I I actually have a dateline, a bit like you get in a newspaper. So it would be Karlag, remembering Stalin's victims, victims, and then Akmal, North Kazakhstan. And the reason I did that was because I am aware that I'm taking people to places which are quite unfamiliar still. And I wanted that dateline there just to immediately place people. Because there's only so much detail we could put on the map at the front of the book. The map is more primitive than I would have liked, but it just gets very, very tight, very messy if you start putting, you know, all these little place names in and you can't really work out where one country starts and another one ends. Um, Because the essays can kind of stand alone as well. You don't have to read the book. I mean, ideally read the book from start to finish, but... You could read a single essay um, and know where you are in, in, in the world and what basically the theme is going to be. So you've been writing about Central Asia for over a decade now. How has the cuisine changed? It's changed and it's not changed. So what I loved in Bishkek this time um, last year in 2020, when I was there for a few months, was quite how brilliant um, it is that you can get a bowl of ramen there now and very good sushi. This was not possible five years ago. I I dare to say. Actually, the sushi restaurant's been there six years. But yeah, like sort of five, six to 10 years ago, it would be shashlik and plov and samsa and quite limited menus in the cafes and restaurants. And now most of the big cities in Central Asia have good coffee shops. You can get a decent latte. And this all sounds very kind of like, you know, whimsical and unnecessary. But again, if you've been traveling for a really long time as an outsider, you might fancy some sushi and there's nothing wrong with that. And of course, local people want this food. Of course, many people travel outside of um, Central Asia now more and more and um, Many people go to Russia, also to Turkey. And so the more the region opens up and the more young people, you know, travel and come back with ideas and and stuff, it's sort of really changing. Um, But still in people's homes, especially outside the big cities, it's quite traditional. I was surprised to discover your favorite Central Asian dish is lagman and not plov. It is. It is my favorite dish. And I ate loads of it in, in Bishkek last year. It's just really delicious. I mean, I love noodles. And lagman is basically a noodle dish. And it's Uyghur, the, the Turkic people living in Xinjiang in China. So it is a Central Asian dish because those people are Central Asian ethnically. And it's a sort of mild stew of meat and vegetables. Normally, the noodles are hand-pulled. It gives it a sort of thickness and a slightly sort of rustic feel. And it's just really delicious. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, mild stew 
mixture of meat and vegetables on top of the noodles, often with celery, which I particularly like, and often with red bell peppers, some chives on the top, maybe some sesame seeds, quite filling, but basically it's lamb and those noodles and vegetables. It's really, really nice. I love it. Can you describe plov? I can. Plov, (laughs) I mean, I've talked about plov so much over the years and it's wonderful the different variations that you have of it. Unlike Lagman, it, it is quite varied. So plov, there are variations of plov. Sometimes you'll have it with quail's eggs on the top of this rice dish, which is cooked in layers. Sometimes you might have it with uh, barberas or quince if it's the season. But always plov is cooked with carrots and onions and rice, cooked in layers with a lot of oil. And what makes a good plov normally is the cook who makes it, first of all. It's a slow dish. It's very calorific. And then perhaps the setting where you're eating it. And more recently, I discovered actually very good garlic makes a difference. So in Osh, in Kyrgyzstan, which is a city which is half Kyrgyz, half Uzbek, there's a man called Imenjon, who I always stay with, and his plov is my favourite plov. And the reason I love Imenjon's plov is because he puts in to his plov whole peeled garlic cloves, which are scattered through the rice. And then as you eat the plov, you mash it through with the back of your fork. And then along with the strong cumin seeds, which are very well toasted and very fresh carrots and onion and plump raisins with this rice, you eat this very filling, slightly oily, delicious, really Moorish plov. And the other beautiful thing about Imen John's plov is the type of the rice, which is quite important for plov. If I'm making a plov here at home in the UK, I just use basmati rice. There is no point trying to mess about the short grain rice because it's too sticky and grains don't separate properly and it becomes a bit of a mess. But if I'm cooking a plov in Central Asia or if I'm eating somebody else's plov, they're probably going to use something like Uzgen rice, which is the rice that Imen John uses and it's short and fat and reddish and very flavoursome so it's the quality like so many things the quality of the local ingredients and Imen John is particularly good because he cooked it uh, for two decades at the base camp of Pete Lenin for the Soviet mountaineers so he's extremely experienced and a wonderful person and a wonderful cook in part two in autumn you move on to the steppe desert and mountain cradle until you end up in Tajikistan in the Fergana Valley shared by Uzbekistan Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. Can Mm -hmm. you describe the autumn markets? Whoa, they're an absolute heaven to me. So I think where you're describing is Hujand. Hujand is northern Tajikistan and it's the Tajik section of the Fagana Valley. And Hujand has got a very, very good market. And there you can buy things like fabulous lemons, which are like your Maya lemons that you can buy in America, which are new to me because we cannot get them here in the UK. And they've got very thin skin and they're very, very juice heavy. And they've got a slight tangerine sort of colour and taste. And they're absolutely delicious. And the markets are just terrific. The the melons that they have there will probably be winter melons in the autumn, which would be early then, but then are sort of hung up on rafters in the market through the winter. And they sort of amass extra sucrose. They get sweeter and sweeter and they're hanging inside the markets, which is visually amazing. And all along the way, as you're driving into Hojand, along the outskirts are cabbage patches and apricot trees and fields of wheat and rice and sort of gushing channels of the Sir Daria River, which comes through Hujand. 
And it's just very, very fertile, the Fagana Valley. Lots of tributaries of, of water feeding this, this region. It's very, very rich. A lot of cotton fields as well. Um, but wonderful, Hojand. It's very Uzbek as a city. When the Soviet Union was created, there were lots of strange borders and pockets of different groups of people ended up outside of their sort of traditional ethnic groups. So Hojan, while it's in Tajikistan, is quite Uzbek. But yeah, really, really interesting. I, I enjoyed it again very much and not a place that gets any tourism, really. People go there a bit because Alexander the Great ended his advance within this region there. And there's a very good regional museum which explains the military leader's life and the time that he was there and end the journey there slightly pretentiously because that was where he ended. So I stand on the banks here, Daria, and say, I've now gone enough because this is where Alexander the Great had also had enough. And so we end in, in Hojand. <laughs> you know, after reading about the Uzbek melons in your book, I realized I probably have never had a good melon. Well, you could have them in California um, because a couple of Uzbek varieties are now growing in California, which is amazing to me because we certainly cannot get them here. Um, no, but you're getting I mean, them there, right? Aren't you? Getting sorry. Aren't the Uzbek melons coming to Britain? I've heard that they are. I haven't seen. I haven't seen them with my own eyes yet. There's a rumor circulating, <laughs> which I'm very keen on, uh, that we might be getting them. Um, it will probably become even more difficult now we've left the European Union. Germany, which has a relatively big Russian population, and Russians appreciate Uzbek melons. I've heard you can get them in markets in Berlin. You can get them in Istanbul. But yeah, I mean, you really want to eat them in, in Uzbekistan because they are unlike any other type of melon. There's a huge number of over 100 different varieties but extremely sweet, extremely sweet. And the fruit generally is just fabulous. It's a reason alone to go, it really is. The recipes in Red Sands are like maps in the book. What sort of criteria did you use to choose the recipes? That's a good question. So I tend to choose recipes or dishes where they have a story attached to them that will reveal to us something new. So while I couldn't do a book on Central Asia with a food focus without including Plov and Lagman, I would rather include something else that would tell us something new about the region. So a couple of my recipes in the book are kind of fantastical. So there's a recipe for Anorak Matava, the Russian poet, because she spent time in Tashkent. And that allows me to then talk about sort of Tashkent being a city of bread and a sort of refuge for people during difficult periods of Russian history. And another recipe, for example, um, for a zapakanka, a sort of a breakfast cake by a woman called Anna, who's, whose guest house that I stayed at, and a Caspian Anka cocktail that's sort of inspired by sea buckthorn, which is a common ingredient. So they're kind of, um, they should tell a story in order to be included and reveal to us something new. Because while Central Asia is still relatively on a underexplored for its culinary delights. I wouldn't say it was completely fresh te territory at all. There are quite a lot of books in Russian um, on Central Asian food and other books have been, have been written. So yeah, I think you have to push the boundaries a bit and do something different. Otherwise, you're just repeating. So okay. what I love about your writing is you take us along your adventures here and there, and you sprinkle in some old stories or writings that pertain to your experience. Um, like in Pavlodar, for example, you wrote the British copper miner John Wardell had to cross the river and the voyage took him seven hours. Like for me as the reader, that makes me want to delve deeper into what you're writing about. 
Great. Well, that that's certainly the idea. Um, yeah, John Wardell was an incredible character. He travelled to the region, I think, was it in 1916, roundabout? And he went to mine copper for the Tsar. He was um, an Englishman. And yeah, he travelled and makes makes my journey look, look very easy. He, he was very, very, very interested in what he found there and wrote, wrote beautifully about the seasons and the, the natural world. I like to bring in uh, one or two travellers from the past to try and show what travel was like then and what it's like now and how some of it's actually stayed the same. So yeah, John John Wardell, I think he crossed all, with all his, all of his belongings in the early summer, that river, the Atush. And when I'm there, uh, the ice flows are just detaching and it just sort of shows you a different scene. Um, I think it, when he crosses it, he talks about it being 10 miles wide or something like that, which it, it was nowhere near that when, when, we, when we were there. Yeah, so the river changes and yeah. John Wardell's very interesting. His book's beautiful. I recommend it. I'm going to have to read that. You know, from Black Sea, I read Sitwell's Romanian Journey because you brought it up in Black Sea. <laughs> I remember you said you read that, which is fantastic. so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's get forgotten. It's a real shame. You know, so many books are published every year and some of these old travel books just sort of fall off the map and nice to bring them back. Now to my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. <laughs> Oh, goodness. So um, that's quite easy for me, actually, because I've been cooking a lot, like everybody, during lockdown from my cookbooks, my cookbook collection, which is actually very modest, from Rupa Galatas, the Indian vegetarian. I absolutely love it. And I cooked last night her Rajasthani onions, which are sort of onions cooked in cream, because I happened to have some cream left over in the fridge. And they were really, really, really nice. And I made that with a kedgeri with some mackerel, because I had some mackerel left over in the fridge as well. So I had those two things together. One was a website recipe and one was Rupa's delicious creamy onions. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of her cooking. I made her chapatas as well. And I'm going to make her bel puri later on this week. So yeah, I'm addicted to her book. It's her new one. So where can we find you on the web and social media? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm probably on Twitter a bit more, but the same handle for both, um, at Eden Travels. All your books are so special. I cannot thank you enough, Caroline, for coming on Cookery by the Book Podcast. Susie, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. 